Welcome to this episode of Beaver Pod with Brad Hill. Unfortunately, during this episode, we had a small technical glitch. About halfway through the interview, you'll hear a short break before the interview reconvenes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode three of Life in Equine Practice, What Makes You Tick? I'm your host, Brad Hill, and I'm excited to say that this is the third recording of this new series, um, which basically I, I've decided to to um, to come up with because I'm intrigued as to what makes us tick and, and what makes um, us all different in equine practice. So what I'll be doing is I'll be talking to my guest and learning about their career paths and how they've navigated their way to the top of their game or, or certainly to a place where hopefully they feel comfortable. We'll be looking back on some of their challenges and we'll be discussing their potential failures or, or perhaps um, three points in their career where actually they, they failed forward if they, if they reflect on those. So um, we'll come to that in the second half of the podcast. So I'll introduce my guest. It's uh, Ellen Singer, which is incredible. I'm so um, excited to have her on this podcast. She really needs very little introduction. Um, when uh, you look on the RCVS, she's a fellow of that. And, and actually, she's a fellow for her contribution to equine practice. And, and that's really how I see her. Not only is she a, a, a top orthopedic surgeon, but she has given back and continues to give back to the, to the profession. She spent a long part of her career at Liverpool, training up the, the next generation of surgeons and also teaching the undergraduates there. And I know she had a, a huge impact on, on the people that, that, that she taught and, and really um, has, has helped them continue to shape their careers. Ellen then has also um, worked at many international three-day events and at the Grand National on several occasions, and I think she continues to, to do that. I've come across Ellen in practice. More recently, she's been working in a number of practices, and I must say, my time with Ellen um, was was it, it was really um, special, and I and I don't use that word lightly. She, I found her incredibly empowering. She gave me time and space to talk through um, cases, and um, and really gave me confidence to to get back out there and and uh, and do the best job I could. I also was lucky enough to spend a bit of time with Ellen outside of work. And, and again, she was equally as intriguing and, and very open uh, to chat about a number of, uh, of different topics. So I will um, move on and, and, and welcome Ellen. Ellen, welcome to this podcast. How are you? Thank you, Bradley. Um, I'm very well today. It's a beautiful spring day and um, yeah, enjoying the break from winter and the the news that we might be coming out of lockdown soon. Yes, it's so it's so exciting. I, I keep thinking that um, hopefully we can do some of these podcasts face to face and actually see each other because uh, um, it always feels so strange doing this over a screen. But we have news of our roadmap out of this, um, so so that's that's a real positive. Um, Ellen, can I just? Um, start by asking you to to take us right back to the beginning of your career where did it all start and 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 where did you graduate from 
So um, it started at, my vet degree was at Tufts University, but being as I was brought up in the um, North American system, I have a Bachelor of Arts from a liberal arts college first, which um, grounded me in a lot of ways and allowed me to have quite a broad education in terms of reading some history, some English, some philosophy, prior to going to vet school and specializing. And that has its advantages, which is the, the breadth of the education, the disadvantage being it takes us a lot longer to get through school. Um, so after my BA, I spent four years at Tufts University, which is in Boston, but similar to Liverpool, it's a split campus with the first two years taking place mainly in Boston proper and the second two years taking place at a field station about an hour west of the city. Um, and, and Ellen, you, you said that you did your, your first degree in, in arts. Um, was that a conscious decision to not do a science-based degree f- first as, as a more of a perhaps conventional lead into your vet degree? Well, you still, you have to meet the requirements for attending vet school, which is quite high in science, biology, chemistry, and physics. But within that, so I could major in biology, but at the same time, I was required to take some courses in different areas. So you had to do a few courses in humanities, you had to do some language, some modern language, uh, various things just to make sure that your education was well-rounded. So it was, it was a, I made the, I didn't really have a choice about getting a BA first, but I was able to have some freedom in choosing what I wanted to study. So I did some romantic poetry. I did a lot of English literature, um, some history of various different time periods, and uh, it was good. And I think it's made me a more well-rounded person um, in the long run. Yeah, I, immediately, I that sort of um, ring, rings a bell with me because um, I was talking to students yesterday at, at Nottingham, and and many of them have come straight from uh, school, and and they feel they've jumped straight into the vet the vet program and it's in lots of ways very kind of narrow and and at Nottingham uh, we're on a a campus where the students if they want to interact with the wider university they they kind of have to to go and do that so it's not like at Liverpool where you you spend two years in the in the city and then you move out at at Nottingham you spend the whole time at at SB and and a lot of the students did sort of say that they felt that they perhaps missed on that out on that wider uni experience so it's interesting you that you've made that point already Ellen that you know that kind of helped you perhaps um, explore those things that that you actually found of interest in addition perhaps to your your vet degree. I also think it helps a lot for um, being certain of which direction you want to go so as a 14 year old in this country you decide you want to go to vet school and you're not really given an option to look sideways at all to say, well, maybe that's not what I want to do. Whereas having the time as a, in a Bachelor of Arts program, you can look to the side and say, well, actually, I, I love horses, but I really don't want to be a vet. I want to be a scientist, or I want to read history, or I want to go into politics or political science or whatever. So that the system, although it's more expensive and takes longer to get through school, it provides an opportunity for people to look around more and, and potentially change your mind about what how you're going to spend the rest of your life. Yeah, that's a really 
powerful message and um and, and it and again I, I think it ties into a lot of the the advice that I give the students now about kind of trying to understand what's important to them and and in some ways thinking about you know what their values are and and how they can align themselves to to what what they're going to do in their careers because let's be honest we spend the most of our lives at work so if we're if we're not comfortable in the job we're in then um then our, our then our whole life is going to be um, affected by that. So I think that's a that's a, a useful um, message. Um, thank you for that, Ellen. Where where did um, just to, just to add on to that, I would say that the the beauty of a veterinary degree is its breadth. So in you know although it is a commitment within the veterinary profession, and you know this as well as anyone that you might commit to being a vet and think you're going to be a horse vet. But really, there are so many options once you have that degree. It's a science degree. You can use it to go into basic research. You can teach. You can work for the government. So You can work for industry. So the degree itself, although it may seem limiting, it actually isn't limiting at all. It's quite a, it's a degree with which you can do a lot of different things. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly not limiting, but I think sometimes students don't quite sort of, um, uh, you know, get that, and perhaps we're not very good at getting that message um, across. But um, where, where did the where did the equine bit then come in, Ellen? Was uh, was that something that you were interested in horses before you went to vet school, or or did that establish, or did you get that interest when you were at vet school? I think that I was horse crazy from a young age, despite growing up in Washington, D.C. in the city and not having a family that was at all animal oriented. And that has stuck with me through well, my whole life, it would seem. Um, so that that drew me in the direction of veterinary medicine and it drew me to equine practice first and then equine surgery. Um, and whether it was a way that my parents actually directed me once they realized that I was horse crazy to keep me from to keep me in an education system with a professional career um I don't know the answer to that and and did you um have an interest in 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 being a surgeon from early, from early on in the in the course or, or or was that something that you thought about doing in your final year where did that interest come that my interest in surgery stemmed from um, being on the colic team when I was in vet school and going in to see lots of colics. And although my career path has taken me in the direction of orthopedics, and that is not a regret at all, but my initial inspiration to become a surgeon was actually through observing and participating in abdominal surgery as a final, third and final year student. Um, and that's really what stimulated me to go on and study surgery after a period of time in practice. And and if can you think back to that experience? I mean, is it you know it obviously had a profound effect on you that being on that colic team. You know, if can you um, you know imagine or not not imagine rather, but but actually think about you know that one colic that was on the table and and you were there as a student as part of the colic team and you couldn't remember it as as if it was yesterday I mean you know was there one kind of light bulb moment when you just thought you know one day I want to be the 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 surgeon cutting that colic I don't know if there was a light bulb moment I think I was involved in enough procedures and helping pre-op and post-op care in the last two years of my degree that I guess I just um really liked it and I felt like it was a time when you were actually really saving a life. A lot of our 
work, as we all know, is preventative medicine or um, with orthopedics for certain uh, trying to get horses that are mildly lame back to full performance. And that in itself is very rewarding. But there are very few times when we're actually saving a life, I think, in equine practice or equine surgery. And, and that is operating on colics is definitely one of those times when you really feel like you're making a difference to the animal, you're making a difference to the to the owner of that animal. Um, obviously, when things go right, it's a great difference. When things don't go well, it's super disappointing. But um, it is definitely one of those times when you, you can have an immediate result that makes you feel like you have actually done something positive for the um, animals in your care. Yeah, I th- I think that I'm just trying to think if is there any other times when you're you're really saving a life um, through surgery or even in in that moment. And I think you're right, really. I I, I don't think um, you know that there is. I'm uh, not that I can think of the top of my head. So I think um, you know that it's idea of a, actually- horse, a horse in respiratory distress would be an example, or a foal that's that's born and has membranes over its nose and needs some yeah. support at the beginning. Um, the yeah. septic joint, you're probably saving the horse's life, but it's not necessarily the same immediacy that the acute abdomen would be. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so after um, Boston, where did you go then? Where, where did you then start that next step onto that road to, to being that colic surgeon? So my, um, I spent a year in a mixed large animal practice, palpating lots of dairy cows and lambing ewes and various other tasks of first opinion practice. That was a job in the northeast of the United States. It was extremely cold. So I spent my first winter tuberming and vaccinating and doing teeth on horses with ice on the rim of the bucket, which was not always the most pleasant experience. So I had a year in that mixed practice, mixed large animal practice, then two years in an equine practice in southern Massachusetts. Um, And then I went, I matched to a surgery residency program in Canada. And I guess if you were, we talk about failures later, I was set on getting a residency at Penn or Cornell, but actually the residency in Canada was, um, was it was a great place for me to be at the Ontario Vet College and I learned loads and got a great education and made some lifelong friends there. Yeah, and, and do you think that, that time in mixed practice, you know, when you had those buckets of ice and thinking you know trudging around and I'm sure there'll be loads of our um, listeners um, tuning in thinking gosh we do that every day did that sort of um, spur you on thinking well you know I don't want to carry on um, you know doing this and uh, I mean I mean I can reflect on a time that I thought I was wanted to be a groom for William Fox pit and I, I went and spent a summer poo picking fields for him and and it was in that moment that I thought well I don't want to be doing this and I know it's very different from what you were doing but did, did it crystallize your thoughts that you don't want to be doing this you want to you want to keep going with your dream I wouldn't say that I I didn't want to be doing that I've gained a huge amount from my time in practice saw loads of normal horses um, I think what we learned at that point in time before the mobile phone, or my first mobile phone was a large contraption that sat on the front seat of my truck, but I, you learned to problem solve on your own because there was no cell phone to ring the boss. There was, so you just had to get on with it and figure out what to do. And, and that actually was quite empowering. You made mistakes, 
some mostly small mistakes, but um, you just you learn to kind of get on with the job on your own without leaning on another person um, all of the time. You obviously I had great support from the practices that I worked for, but you were you know you were thirty minutes from the practice. You were there with the client. You didn't have a phone to ring home. I had a couple of books that I kept under the seat of my truck. Um, and you just had to problem solve to the best of your ability um, in in the moment. So I and I enjoyed looking at normal horses and having clients that I saw over and over again. Um, so I I did really really enjoy being in practice, and I think there you, know, you can you can do a great job in practice. But I just felt like I wanted to learn more at that point in time, and I felt that the only way to do that was to go on and uh, get some further education in surgery. Uh, yeah, I think um, you know that pro- problem solving in the moment. I think we've all been there, and and I'm thinking now about my book that I had uh, stored away, and it used to definitely come out either in laybys or at the back of the the, the truck. Um, uh, when I, I was nipping back to just check on something, but actually look up um, the condition that 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 I was uh, that was in front of me. So yeah, you know that that problem solving in the moment is a is a really important skill and um and like you said can can sort of set you up to 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 be useful for the rest of your uh career um did you i think also one of the so one of the things that that i think we observe today is that um our young vets are and students and young vets are they're so afraid of failing when actually that's the only time that you learn is if you get something wrong You'll never make the mistake again, and so that what you class as a failure, you might feel yourself as a failure at the moment. It's actually a, a learning experience that sets you up for other experiences like that, where you think, "Well, I've not got that perfectly right, but it's actually it's going to be okay, and I've learned from that, and I'll do it differently the next time." Yeah, no, I think you've um, you've read the script, Ellen, because it, again, that's sort of you know why I, I felt like it was important to do this podcast because um, I do think we have uh, a, a, I don't know if it's a generation or a lot of students. That, again, I was only chatting about this yesterday who feel that their confidence. Um, it, it it almost is eroded at vet school because for whatever reason they they are in a, a group of perfectionists um, and they feel as time goes on that they become more afraid of making a mistake and they develop more of a, an imposter syndrome and um, and I don't know where and, and I feel sometimes when I interview vet students they're more confident than they are if when I do an exit interview with them right at the end. And I think, well, where's that confidence gone? Um, so, so it, it, yeah, we could probably debate that um, uh, uh, all day long, but, but for you then, when, when you got your residency, where did, where did you go um, then? Where, where was the next move? So into the residency or after the residency, sorry. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. So did you, so if we just pick up, did you, you did, where did you do your residency again? So I went, I did my residency at the Ontario Veterinary College in Guelph, Ontario, which is just outside of Toronto. Um, and the beauty of that program was that it was a residency program, but it was also a graduate degree in research at the same time. So it was something called a Doctor of Veterinary Science. So in addition to the surgical training, there were classes that you had to attend and a research project to undertake. And the thing about the classes was it 
taught you that you didn't need to be the person in the clinic all the time, that you could leave that to go to your class and come back and your colleagues would support you and would look after your cases and that the world wasn't going to end if you weren't actually the person there, which was, again, a life lesson that you need to you know, rely on and collaborate with your colleagues so that the job gets done for the best of the ability and the best outcome for the patient. Um, and to, you know, trust your team to work with them and, you know, support each other. So it was a great experience, uh, some great people that I got to work with. And, um, yeah, and even though I was disappointed at the beginning that I wasn't going to Penn or Cornell or Ohio State, um, it couldn't have been a better place for me to go. Yeah. And and then when you moved from there, did you was that when you came over here, or did you uh, did you go somewhere in between? So when I finished my residency, I had not secured a job. There was a job going um, at the OBC that I desperately wanted to have, and I was not given the job because partly because of not being a Canadian citizen, they need to prioritize Canadians ahead of foreigners. So that was fine. Um, so I went off to spend three months, what was meant to be three months in Israel at the veterinary school there, um, which in the end turned out to be about a two-year position. So again, I guess an example of something that wasn't what I had planned, but in, in the end turned out to be quite a rewarding and educational experience in loads of different ways. So, Yeah, I mean, um, that, that sounds incredible, you know being in Israel and, and, and the differences in culture and education and um, the, the, the way they do things clinically. Is there any sort of pockets of information that you can sort of share with us just so we can get a real picture of what it, what it was like out there? So I guess of the edu- education in Israel is very high quality. So the, the standard of education is very good. The standard of science is very good. Um, and the the school that I went to work for was at that point was just starting. I think that was the fifth class that they had ever had. We had forty students in the class, which was super privileged because you knew everyone. Um, I was immediately put in a having had some surgical training. The other person who did surgery at the institution was a small animal surgeon who was filling in doing some equine. And so I was immediately put in a position of responsibility that I was probably not quite ready for, but it forced me to take on that leadership position to problem solve things that I had no clue how to problem solve, but again, had to work through on my own. Um, I had some challenges because the way the school was set up, there were only two people in the whole school um, that had permanent jobs. So many of my colleagues were on part-time contracts and so had other jobs that they did or were required to do because they had families to support. Um, the general, In general, the vet students have already been to the Army and also already done a, an undergraduate, what I would call an undergraduate or Bachelor of Arts degree. So they're older students, many with families. They also had responsibilities still to their Army Reserve duty. And so... Um, I, again, you had to learn that you had to accept that people had other responsibilities. They couldn't stay till five o'clock. Some even would be leaving at two in the day because they had other practices to run because they needed to guarantee themselves an income. So, so as that as much as that was a frustration, it was also a reality check. 
for the privileged situation that in North America or in the UK that you live in, where you know the vet school was well established and was paying everybody a reasonable salary. So, so that was um, challenging, but also again educational. The school didn't have a lot of money. I ended up not just teaching surgery, but teaching anatomy and teaching in areas that I was not that strong in, but you had to, you know, figure it out and teach to the best of your ability. So it was some, it was in some ways very frustrating, but also very rewarding. And I'm sure I gained loads and loads of skills Um, in that. I had colleagues that I admired greatly who had just set examples in terms of some interpersonal skills and how they manage students and how they manage conflict and and it was a it was a very big growing experience for me yeah it sounds like again you you kind of picked up lots of different skills and 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 rather than perhaps you know going straight into a a, a role which you know was very fixed it sounds like you had to be quite flexible and prepared to to dip in and out of other teaching commitments and and like you said you know be aware that the, the, the team were on part-time contracts so that you know the dynamics and things could change so it's um it certainly sounds like you know you um you you had to be aware that you know it was things could be quite changeable in terms of um your job role and the, the team that you worked with so yeah it sounds like a, a different setup to to perhaps something that we we see over here in our in our um our universities but it was also great because the school now, so when I left there and came to my position at Liverpool for the first 12 years, I think that I was in the UK, I would return every year for a couple of weeks and take on most of the orthopedic teaching because they, again, did, didn't have specialists in all the areas. And so as part of what, you know, when I took the job at Liverpool, I expressed an interest in continuing to do that work and that was well supported. Um, so I was involved in the school through lots of its growth. And now it's a, you know, it's an AVMA approved school. They have a very strong program. They've trained surgeons of their own. And um, so so it's been super nice to watch that that institution grow and develop over the last 25, 30 years. Yeah, wow. It, it's, yeah, that must be very rewarding to have, um, you know, seen it at the beginning and then, um, and then sort of, you know, gone back regularly and, and, and actually now be, be able to say, gosh, you know, this is where it's come from and this is where it is now. So, yeah, um, you know, great, great to be a part of that. So then, so then you joined Liverpool and, you know, I think that, you know, we can all say that, you know, you spent a long time there and, 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 uh, were, you know, a huge contributor to, to, to the university and, and the education of so many students and residents. And, um, you certainly became a, a household name and, um, you know, for, 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 for for bringing so much um you know I, th- I think that is incredible and 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 would you say that you know it was at Liverpool that that, that you kind of realized that you know your career then was was really sort of stepping up and you were kind of you know moving forward you know quicker and you know you were becoming recognized and you know do, would you say that it sort of gave you that platform to to really sort of spring into, you know, that role that you dreamt of when you, you know, went to vet school way back at the beginning? Was was Liver, 
Was it the catalyst? I'm not sure that I ever dreamt. I, you know, I left that school saying I'm never going back to an academic institution. So I think my drive to become a, a boarded surgeon in academia kind of, I guess, developed of its own accord in a way without me saying, oh, when I'm, you know, 45, I want to be a professor. Um, it was more I, I found a job that was supposedly temp like my initial job at Liverpool was a temporary position. And then for various reasons, other, I think when you step out of an accepted system where people aren't used to, you know, the, the US and the UK, as much as they cooperate, there is or had been somewhat of a divide or a lack of appreciation of how the other system worked. Um, so w when I was looking for a job in the U.S. at the end of my temporary contract, it, they, there did not appear to be that many jobs available. And to be fair, at that point, I had had Derek Nottenbelt and Barry Edwards. I was working with Chris Riggs, Chris Proudman, and it was a great team. And um, it just w was a fun place to work. and. At work, we had a good team. Outside of work, I had lots of leisure activities and good friends. And so I ended up staying on at Liverpool. I guess it wasn't planned, but um, I don't regret it at all. It was, a, you know, it was a great place to work. And as you said, I felt like I was contributing to lots of different parts of the profession. I was helping students. I was training surgeons. I was involved in Viva, which was great. I got involved in the ECBS. So it, you know, it allowed me to develop professionally. Okay, so we're picking up the second half of this podcast. So, Ellen, we had a bit of a blip with the second half of the recording. So, welcome back. It's a very different sunny day, but but thank you for coming back to re-record this second half. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I've just had a few days off, and so I'm feeling well rested and enjoying the sunny weather again. Brilliant. Okay, thanks, Ellen. So we're going to um, pick up where we left off. So we were talking about your career. We'd arrived at Liverpool. You had talked about your um, the opportunities it gave you to collaborate and contribute to lots of different parts of the equine profession while while being at Liverpool and, and it being a platform to do that. And and actually it made me think that having stepped back into academia myself, I would echo that because at Nottingham I find it really exciting that I can be part of lots of different areas and, and research and, and almost on the front line. Did did you find that that environment was quite infectious, Ellen? It's it's a great environment to be in because everybody around you is doing something. We're all doing our day jobs, but then everybody's doing their research and looking into new things. And so it is exciting to be part of part of teams that are pushing pushing the boundaries. Is you know seems like a cliche, but it's actually true. People that are people that are testing new ideas and trying to do research. And it's also was an infectious educational environment, particularly with Barry and Derek there and that there was a huge enthusiasm for teaching the next generation of students so that was that was quite infectious and a great great place to be in terms of that yeah and, and you talk about that team and those renowned equine clinicians and academics and certainly I think Liverpool still has this reputation as being the vet school where lots of students want to go to if they want to be equine vets and I remember 
way back when I was applying that if you wanted to do equine, you went to Liverpool and we still have students that will not come to Nottingham because they want to do equine and therefore they go to Liverpool. So, so clearly, Ellen, there was something going on there which um, built that reputation up. Mm. Yeah, I think it had a lot to do with uh, Barry and Derek before me. But then there were, you know, Chris Proudman and just it was a great team. And I, I think one of the special things was that the students, regardless of whether they wanted to do equine or small or farm, they still seemed to enjoy coming to our department and learning from us, even though they may never see a horse again. So um, it, it was just a great, great environment to be in. Yeah, and, and creating that that team approach and atmosphere certainly trickles down through the students, and I think that, that they enjoy that and they feel that that sense of um, everyone working together and 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 towards a common cause. Um, so, so after Liverpool, Ellen, you were there for how many years? Was it? Did you say it was eight years? That's about 20, 25 oh. years. <laughs> time. That's you knew I've, that, I've, but you just forgot. Yeah, that's obviously <laughs> why I haven't recapped enough. So that is a that is a very long time. So did you did you feel that when you stepped um, uh, away from Liverpool that you you were you had been fairly institutionalised, or is that the wrong word? I mean, how was that transition from going from Liverpool out into the equine world outside of Liverpool. I mean, how did that feel and what what was that period of time like? So obviously it was the end of a, well, it would have been, it was different because it had changed a routine of many, many years, um, much of which I enjoyed for a very long time. But stepping out gave me a huge opportunity to visit lots of different practices and to meet new people, to visit different parts of the UK that I hadn't been to. Um, and from learning from the other, as much as you go in as a specialist to help them, you always learn things from practices that you go to see, whether it's little tips about practical stuff or practice management, all, all kinds of things. So although it was a big adjustment, um, it has you know given me new opportunities that I didn't expect to have. So it you know in the end, it's positive. I have a little bit more personal freedom. I'm doing less research, which I'm missing but I've you know there there are other things that, that I'm doing that I wasn't able to do before so um a positive outcome um and I just thinking about that adjustment period Ellen because I, I know this is something you have spoken to me about but and I just like to to explore this but but I found out about your faith and and the fact that you um you still uh, abide by that and 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 although it perhaps doesn't shape your daily life it is still something that's important to you so during that period of adjustment when you're trying to perhaps find maybe find yourself again if 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 you're sort of going through a a, a transition in jobs or careers did you use your faith as as a grounding tool I don't, I don't know if I use it as a grounding tool. I think I use my family as a grounding tool, which all the, those things are all connected. Um, you know, the family and family celebrations and family ethos about, you know, how you interact with people, things like that. So I don't know if it was faith exactly, but the family and the culture within Judaism of the family being strong. I guess would have would obviously helped during that time. 
Yeah, and obviously family values and and core relationships are are important. So would you say you were someone then that that kept that that connection going? I mean, do you you speak to your family regularly or, um, uh, you know, how do you go about maintaining those those communication channels or all those connections um with your family yeah it's difficult being far away but with you know especially in the last year with all the zooming everyone's doing it's actually been great from a family point of view but even before that just picking up the phone and speaking to people and you know touching base with um you know, obviously every family has its own dysfunctionalities, but speaking to the people in the family that I connect with easily and that I feel could give me advice or kick up the backside, depending on what it was I needed at the time. Um, but yeah, the, so but now the, the Zoom thing is just great and the family's in really good contact. But through through all the changes, the family was very important, even though a lot of things I didn't tell them straight away. <laughs> yeah yeah i i'm just yeah I, w- I would agree that zoom microsoft teams we're also m- much better connected really now than perhaps we were pre-covid because we we didn't know how to use a lot of these platforms and now they seem um almost like second nature so so there's a a, a positive of of covid it's is keeping those connections um, Ellen, I want to talk about um, the Grand National because I know that it's coming up and um, it's even closer now that we're re-recording this than we did first time around. So <laughs> yeah. um, I, I know that you've been one of the, the, the vets there as part of a wider team for from for many years. And and even the thought of, of being a vet there at the Grand National makes me go slightly sweaty palmed because I've, I, I have been... Uh, an official vet at the local point to points quite a few times. And I do find them, I have found them quite stressful. Um, so, so what's the grand national like and, and, and how do you, um, uh, maintain your, your, your head and, 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 and not get into this sort of panic about what could happen? So I think so. So obviously, since the last time we spoke, I actually I looked back to see when I first started and I started the year that Monty's Pass won, which was 2003. So it's 18 years I've been doing it. And I think it's the team and the knowing that you always have a team behind you or with you, not just a veterinary team, but a ground staff team and loads of people just around to help or cooling off team. And so, you know, that um, things are going to be dif- difficult at times and there's going to be hot horses and injured horses but knowing that the team functions well is really well it makes it easier to to negotiate it and there's always a bit of adrenaline surge through your body until well for the full three days really um I'm lucky I'm in the stable so I'm in some ways a hidden quantity my colleagues in the out in the country and following the horses around they're in a much more immediate situation than I am. I have the luxury of picking them up as they come off the race course and then anything that's in the stables. But we have pre-meetings. We had our first our meeting last week. We discuss scenarios. We talk about what might have been done better from previous years. And so there's always ideas circulating around. We talk to vets at other race courses to see what, particularly the vets at Cheltenham, there's a connection between our senior vets and them. And, and 
you know, we discuss how did you do this this year with COVID and how did you do that? You know, we have a special issue this year with the horses traveling from Ireland. So that was all new things to sort out. But if we work as a team, it, it makes the job fun and easy, if stressful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can. Um, well, I can't imagine how stressful it, it, it potentially could get. What's the biggest thing you enjoy then about doing it? Because obviously, having done it for eighteen years, you clearly keep going back. So, so what would be the the three things that you enjoy the most about being a vet at the Grand National? I think one is just being part of a huge sporting event with some of the best racehorses in the world. It's quite a buzz. You're you're responsible for the welfare of the horses, but you're also participating in like a huge international sports spectacle which has a totally different feel than a point-to-point or even a even a three-day event where the spectators they're you know they're just not in the same kind of area as they are with the grandstand and everybody's having a lovely time and so I guess the horses and then being part of the spectacle and then the other is just the team that you work with which are which are great and everybody you know pulls together and helps everybody else out so um yeah did yeah. I get to three? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I mean, it almost—it's—it it almost sounds like a bit of theatre. That that first, um, you know, point that you described. You know, where you've got the spectators that are all dressed up and in the stands and enjoying the racing, and you're these high-profile horses, and then behind the scenes, there's there's all this extra extra important um, detail going on, which you're a part of. So yeah, it, it is it is 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 quite the the um uh environment uh, um to be a part of so um yeah it it must be quite a, a special feeling it's 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 really fun it's really stressful but it's really you know as i said it's fun to be a part of it and part of that team and to help the whole thing run smoothly and keep horse welfare in the front of people's mind and make sure that the horses are well looked after, which Aintree does a brilliant job of. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even more so now, Ellen, with horse racing, um, welfare is so important and the recent events have uh, highlighted again, how uh, we have a responsibility to, to uphold that. So uh, it's a, it's a really important point. Ellen, we're going to come on to talk about your failures. Um, would you mind sharing with us your your first failure? So I guess um, the, I guess my one of my fail, what I perceived as a failure was a failure not to secure the job that I thought was my dream job, which was staying at the place that I did my residency and continuing on there as a faculty surgeon. But I think as with any failure, there's always a silver lining to it. There's a, you know, you have to always be positive and look forward. Um, I didn't get the job in Ontario, but I went off to Israel and had a really different experience and learned a lot about myself and about Mm -hmm. managing other people and about Israel and Palestine and young vet schools, which I think that you probably at Nottingham, you're aware of some of it, but starting a vet school is really difficult and um, takes a lot of time and energy and different people and support. And so you learn about 
you know, I learned about all kinds of things and, you know, opp had opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise. So it was, although it felt like a failure at the time, it was definitely not a failure in the long run. Yeah, you're reminding me of, of what I've been doing this morning, which is designing the curriculum. So we've got the dual cohort. So we've got two cohorts of students now running alongside each other at Nottingham and, and therefore there's a fair bit of curriculum design and it's it's uh, it's very different but it, it's good fun but it's nice it, like you've just said to be part of something new and actually hopefully improving the 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 overall content for the the next generation of vets so yeah I would I would um I would agree with you um on, on that point and and also on the point about not securing that first job because like you said it's at the time it seems like the world has ended because you've not got that job but 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 maybe it wasn't the right fit for you so actually there's a better fit round the corner I think that's that's true because sometimes you interview people for a job and they're great people but you realize that something about what their ambitions are their goals their previous experience is not actually going to fit in with the team that you're trying to build. And as disappointing as it is, it's probably the right choice for possibly for the candidate, although I hesitate to say that I should be making choices for someone else. Um, but if, uh, if it doesn't fit within the remit of what you're trying to build in your practice or your university, then it, it's probably doing that person a favor rather than putting them in a situation that is not suitable for them. Yeah, and and having that perspective afterwards to be able to say actually it probably wasn't the right job for me is is really important, and it's part of failing forward and, and not dwelling on on what might have been and actually seeing the next opportunity. Um, what about your second second failure, Ellen? I think we um, I we talked about the last time because again with the re-record, so I talked about. Um, clinical failures, which I think, you know, they happen all the time, little things that you have done one way that you think, oh, next time I could do it better if I did it, use this suture material, or I approached it from the medial side rather than the lateral side or something to that effect. But then there are the things that happen and there's like no turning back. So I cut a colic, was cutting a colic once, and I ended up putting my finger through the horse's large colon. And that's obviously a fairly serious in that particular situation. It was the game over for the horse. And um, I don't know if it happened because I was being too rough or the, the gut was compromised to begin with, but it still was, to me, was a failure. And it just reminds you how careful you need to be all the time. Um, I didn't think I was being cavalier in my handling of the gut, but it definitely was a wake-up call for me in terms of that. So... Uh, a learning experience and not one of the small mistakes that does not have a large impact on the horse. It was a, it, you know, it had a significant impact on the horse and obviously then on the client attached to that horse. Yeah. And uh, thank you for sharing that, Alan, because I think by, sh by sharing those experiences, particularly as a, a younger vet listening to a more experienced vet talking about honestly about those experiences it it it, it, it does um help because it makes you realize that that it this happens to everyone and it is just part of being in the profession and 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 developing and evolving and learning and 
that's certainly one of the great things I found with working with you clinically, Ellen, was that you really made me feel that um, it was okay to ask for help and advice. And actually, together, we could, we could um, you know, help potentially uh, fix most things. I, and, I, and while talking about this, I, I, I think back to a vetting that I went out to do at the dreaded five-stage vetting and had to do lots of x-rays. And I came back to the practice and I remember saying to you, Ellen, would you mind reviewing these x-rays with me? And and you took the time to do that. You reviewed them. And, and actually, you made me feel that I could go out and do that. And therefore, the next time a vetting came in with loads of x-rays, I was the first one to take it rather than ignoring the message and then having reception chase me. So it, it, it's a really important skill. Mm, yeah. And I guess I was just thought of another, if I could, can I do another failure yeah, now? Which yeah. I, think it's, I don't know if it's a failure, but it's a common thing that happens clinically that has probably happened to everybody, which is the first time you put something in the artery instead of in the vein. And you know, that can also have some serious repercussions for the horse and for you and the people working with you. And so I guess that, although I've had, probably had it happen twice, once once is enough. But um, again, that is, that's a clinical failure in some ways because you've not done the job the way you want to do it. Um, but it's not an uncommon occurrence that I think most vets will have experienced at some point in equine vets in their, sometime in their career. Yeah, I, I can certainly remember the time that I've done it, and luckily the horse was on cross ties, and it was a very small amount, so it didn't have a too much of a dramatic um, end result. But but again, it's probably some of those failures that we don't necessarily talk about because we hide it away and and perhaps feel a bit embarrassed. Um, whereas actually, it's happened to a lot of us. Yes. Uh, um, Ellen, what what do you do to to decompress, wind down? Maybe if you've had a day that um, has been full of these things that we've perceived as clinical failures, but actually are all part of um, building our, um, our our roles within the profession and and ourselves uh, as people. So, so what do you do to decompress? What what what's your well being goals? So I um, I have a horse that I ride every day before work. So I have my little protected Ellen time early because in our job, we never know when we're going to be finished. And as much of a struggle as it is getting up early, sometimes it's actually, it means I have some protected personal time, Um, not having a family. That's a privilege that I've been able to continue throughout my career. Um, And so there's that. And then Outdoor stuff, running, running, biking, seeing my friends, longer holidays up in the mountains always, Um, reading fiction, lots of reading of fiction, listening to music, dancing around the kitchen occasionally, things like that. So, yeah, just um, trying to switch off and um, make sure that I have some time to myself every day. Yeah, being able to disengage and and, uh, switch off is so important in any profession but particularly ours um on the last uh, podcast ellen that we've uh, we're having to re-record that bit but but you did share some something at the end which i'd just like you to repeat if you don't mind about what you do in those high stakes moments that that perhaps helps um 
bring you back down to reality and not get too drawn into to what's going on in front of you. I mean, I think you, you get drawn into what's in front of you, but when you sort of sit back, there's always, you, I think you have to kind of have a, try to, you need to be serious about what's happened, but you also can have a sense of humor about what's happened and whether it means that it's because you've slipped over, you've been trying to pull, deliver a foal and you end up on the floor covered in mare fluid and lube, um, you know, in three o'clock in the morning. And although it's, really disappointing that you couldn't get the foal out alive or you did the Caesar and the foal was dead and the mare then has problems. There's still the, those moments of lightness when, you know, you, you stand up and you realize that you're totally covered in like just soaking wet from something. And, and it's probably the same, it's the same as if you spent hours, you're in practice and you spent hours trying to get a horse out of a ditch or something and you end up just, you know, covered in muck and you have to kind of think about the you know, make a little joke to yourself about, you know, the craziness of the profession and what you're doing and, um, you know, just try to keep keep a sense of perspective on where you are. Yeah, thank you for that, Ellen. I think that's, that's a really important point and that was just the point that I thought it was good to, to, to highlight again. I think actually, in terms of like the younger people listening, I think it's also really important when you have a if you have a client that's being super difficult, like just be super serious with them. But then when you walk away, you can just kind of shake your head and go, geez, I hope I never behave like that. Or, you know, just, just have a little laugh about, you know, that person really said that to me. Um, so that you, you can keep your perspective and keep the fact that you've been trying your hardest to do a good job. And if somebody didn't appreciate it, it's actually not your problem. It's their problem that they haven't appreciated your hard efforts. Maybe that's a bit harsh, but. You know, I think you need to keep the sense of self and self-worth. Yeah, you make me think of the word self-compassion, Ellen. And I think, you know, part of that is being kind to yourself and actually being your own biggest ally. So having a little word with yourself when you walk away and smiling, you're you're actually giving yourself a pat on the back and and being, being a friend to yourself like you would be a friend to a colleague and sometimes we're not very good at being our own best friends we're we're our own biggest critics um and and actually just having those moments um okay thank you alan we've we've come to the end of this podcast um uh and again yeah again and thank you to the listeners for for tuning in and listening to um alan to speak about an amazing career i'm sure we've really only had a, a, a snapshot into it but your authenticity and your openness has has been incredible and, and thank you so much alan for for agreeing to do this you're welcome brad it's been a pleasure brilliant and tune in to hear my next episodes thank you everyone bye this episode of beaver pod was produced by beaver For more information on Beaver products and the benefits of your membership, please go to www.beaver.org.uk.